As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have today with me award-winning producer, director, and cinematographer who is well known the worldwide for his work in time-lapse photography. We're about to learn all about Louis Schwartzberg. Welcome to the podcast, Louis. It's great to be here. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. I've just finished screening your upcoming film, which is called Fantastic Fungi, which I always thought it was fungi, but it's fungi. Can you confirm that? Is that true? Academics prefer fungi, but I can tell you're a fun gal and I'm a fun guy. So Hey, there we go. Yeah. We're in. We We're are in. in the pocket now. So Louie and I, just for full disclosure, have had a talk. We talked about two months ago, I believe, to just get to know each other. I found you initially through Katie Hess's work with Lotus Way through your photography in her book, Flower Evolution. So big shout out to Katie. Yeah. Beautiful, stunning photography. I've just never seen anything like it before or since. And I thought I might share that you are the only filmmaker in the world who's been shooting time lapse 24 seven continuously over four decades. You are a visual artist breaking barriers. You are telling stories that celebrate life, that reveal the mystery and the wisdom of nature. And this is something that I feel we don't actually talk about enough. We get so caught up in our minds. And so I really enjoyed the film. I have so many questions. The, the mushrooms as the uh, digestive tracts of the forests. I just, I can't get over the time lapses were plenty in this film. And so if you're even remotely connected to plants at all, definitely watch Fantastic Fungi. I think most notable aspect was watching how the mushrooms actually serve to decompose dead and dying organisms and then serve those molecules back into the life cycle. And I thought it might be interesting to ask you how long those uh, time lapses take and how you did it. Well, a lot of what I film, I film in the studio because obviously if it's going to go on for a week or weeks, then you know, we have to be, have control of the lighting, control of the wind, control of the fact that nobody would steal your camera if you left it outdoors for a month. And um, so, yeah, a lot of those de decomposition shots took three to four weeks. The only drag is sometimes it, it can get a little stinky right. uh, when... But it's a beautiful thing. I mean, the idea of, of decomposition can either be seen as the end of life or it can be seen as the beginning of life. And if you open your mind to that, basically it's just a transition. It's a circle of life. And where does it begin? Where does it end? It's connected. And I 
find it to be extraordinarily beautiful just observing how things break down. I was finding it interesting. Uh, Michael Pollan mentioned in the film that uh, plants have evolved to catch your eye. Mushrooms are not evolved to catch your eye. They're evolved to serve very particular functions. And with without fungi, the plant matter would actually build up and choke the earth. Right. And what the fungi do is break down all the plant matter to give way to new life, as you just said. So... I just found that to be so interesting. Well, look at what we're doing now in our own you know, social fabric. I mean, we finally realize that we have to recycle, right? If we don't recycle, it creates an, a giant environmental problem. Yeah. So nature invented that billions of years ago, uh, the fact that everything is recycled. There is no waste. I mean, the beauty of nature, it doesn't waste a single molecule. So um, all those you know, ingredients that is the building blocks of life comes from you know the fact that fungi and mycelium break things down into their tiny little components. Some of it is food that they eat, just like we need food that we eat. And then those elements of carbon, et cetera, are stored in the ground for new life to emerge. And I loved watching uh, Paul Stamets. Stamets? Stavis? Am I saying his name right? Stamets. Thank you. If you haven't seen it and this interests you and you're listening, his Ted Paul Stamets, S-T-A-M-E-T-S, did a TED Talk in 2008. He's featured quite often in this film. He basically had bacteria. Fungi. He had the fungi, fungi, grow on a pile of an oil spill, basically. He learned in this particular experiment because they did it with they tried two other things to break it down. The mycelium actually dissolved, broke down the carbon-hydrogen bonds in the oil, yeah. and grew an entire field of mushrooms on this oil spill that actually served to break down the, the toxicity that would have obviously mm -hmm. affected the entire ecology surrounding that spill and made that pile of oil an oasis of life. Yeah, because, because you know, the birds come in, insects come in, you know, to eat the mushrooms, and then seeds are dropped. And before you know it, you know, nature has this incredible resiliency to um, replenish itself. And there you go. Life emerges all over again. And he did this by inoculating the oil spill with mushroom spores, basically. Yeah. Yes. This... This really woke me up. I am so remiss that I haven't seen it in the last decade. I had no idea that that happened. And why aren't we doing more of this with more of the toxic waste that we have on planet Earth? That's my question. Well, <clears throat> that is a valid question. I think that what we've discovered, like with the big oil spill that happened in the Gulf, giant mega companies, chemical companies come in and go, oh, I've got a solution for that. I've got this other toxic chemical that can dissolve the oil spill. That I can sell to you. That I'll sell to you, you know, for billions of dollars. That'll break up the oil, but guess what? It'll poison the ocean at the same time. So these are like mega contracts. And then we're in that cycle of just, you know, industrial, industrial waste damaging our, our, our environment and our ecosystems. It's tremendous. We have um, also in the film the biomimicry inventor. Uh, I'm not recalling his name right now, but he, Jay Harmon. Jay Harmon, 
who says that all of us are just like the little networks of mycelium that live all the threads like neural pathways underneath the floor of the forest. I loved the, you included a couple of images of a person stepping on the forest floor and how that would light up all of these little, what looked like neural pathways in the brain beneath each footstep. Yeah, the mycelium network is like the internet under the ground. It's a shared economy, not based on greed, but of sharing nutrients between plants and trees. It creates a community um, that is called a forest. And it's beautiful because when that happens, it allows ecosystems to flourish, which should be a model, I think, for how we could live our lives above the ground. Um, you know, James Cameron used that idea from scientists in my film, which really is the core essence of the spiritual vibe in Avatar, the whole idea of the mother tree. So in Susan Samard's research, she discovered, and this just, you know, warms your heart, that a mother tree will actually favor its baby and give it extra nutrients so that it can grow and prosper. So the, you know, this idea that, you know, trees can either communicate to each other or they are, you know, similar to us in our kind of narrow-minded point of view that we're like the only really conscious creatures on the planet. It really broadens your perspective to realize that this idea of love happens in plants as much as it happens with people. Yeah. I noticed also and noted that the, the mother trees, when insects come, you know, invasive insects come, they will actually sort of push, I, uh, I don't know if I understood this well, but push the baby tree farther afield from them so that they are not affected by yeah. the insects. Is that true? Yeah, well, they, they, they give them a warning signal. And then also they want them to, well, just like, you know, parents today, I think you want your kids to leave the nest. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and stand up on your own two feet. So encouraging them to move further away where there's less competition for resources is another reason why, why that happens. And again, to protect them from invasive, you know, pests and other diseases. So they, they communicate with each other. That's really the point. And I also found it interesting that the plants, they take in all the carbon dioxide and they put about 70% of it below the ground, stored mm -hmm. in the cell walls of the fungi, which fuels this whole commun microbial community and then stabilizes, this is the key, the carbon in the soil, which is moving from plant yeah. to plant and saving the planet. Why is this information not being more utilized right now <laughs> i'm not sure quite why it's not being utilized let's just say it's like the duh principle it's so fucking obvious yeah. it's right under our feet i know so you know this is the greatest natural solution for climate change so what people need to understand is every time we exhale we exhale co2 carbon dioxide plants take in carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen what a beautiful symbiotic relationship well <clears throat> what's happening so when a plant and a tree inhales the CO2, the oxygen is being released and the carbon is going, you know, through the branch, down the trunk of the tree, into its roots. And at the tip of the roots, it's transferred into the mycelium network where it's stored there for thousands of years. 
I mean, this is where oil came from, you know, decomposition of organic matter, coal. And what we've done is we've dug up all that carbon, we've burned it, put it up into the atmosphere, and have created a giant imbalance. So what we need to do, we've got to get out of the way and let nature do its thing. If we stopped putting uh, CO2 into the atmosphere, scientists have said that we could actually clean the atmosphere in as little as five years. That's a big if, if we could stop doing it. But the point is, we have a mechanism in place. We have a process that enables us to clean the atmosphere if we stop polluting tomorrow. What do you think, I mean, if you could, off the top of your head, think of the, the biggest offenders, you know, without like pointing fingers or anything, but a general overview of the general industry that is the biggest offender? You know, I would say, well, there's a lot, obviously, but industrial agriculture, because it relates maybe specifically to our topic of the mycelium network. Yes. Um, so the positive things we can do is like no-till agriculture. Mm. You don't want to break up that network under the ground. Um, stop using pesticides. They, they kill the mycelium under the ground. Um, GMOs. Stop using fossil fuel fertilizers because you've got this symbiotic relationship where the mycelium and the trees and plants are sharing nutrients with one another. Well, if you put the fertilizer in there, you've broken up that relationship. And then when that fertilizer is gone, where's the mycelium? Right. So, you know, industrial agriculture uh, is a big problem. Also, look at how much we produce in terms of uh, industrial livestock. Mm. I mean, how much land we have converted into pens to store animals. That that soil is dead, uh. you know. It, there's nothing underneath the hooves of those cows and pigs that you know covers a giant chunk of the earth. There's nothing alive beneath their feet. This is a big problem. Wow. And we just need to let nature, as Susan Samard says in my movie, let nature do its thing. Yeah. If we get it, we just got to get out of the way and let nature heal itself. Right. I loved her pieces in the film, actually. A couple more things I want to talk to you about the film, and then I want to talk about your sort of bigger picture uh, dreaming, envisioning for yourself. What were your favorite two shots of the film in the final edit mm. i'm curious to hear yeah well i think you know one of the hardest ones is following the uh, the co2 molecule into a leaf and then you know having it be a point of view ride down the trunk of a tree into the roots into the mycelium network yes. and then you go underground i mean i think that really visualizes it for people because you can explain it and you sort of might get it but to be a to actually be a CO2 molecule and carbon traveling under the ground and, and have it be in this magical mystery world of interconnectivity, of interconnection, of interdependence. What a beautiful feeling you get because that feeling is a homecoming. I think it warms your heart to realize how everything is connected. Mm -hmm. And when you have that feeling in your heart, you actually almost lose the fear of dying. This makes me think that if you're a teacher listening to this, particularly a teacher of children or college age uh, humans, this is a really important film for you to watch first and then to show to as many students as you can to bring this upcoming generation of humans 
to an understanding of the interdependence that we need to be fostering in this network underground. I think that's a really important point. And, and especially, you know, it's obvious, we've become so disconnected from nature and very um, addicted to our digital devices, which basically has created more loneliness and more separation. Yeah. So when you, when you mentioned, you know, pointing this out to young people, they're the ones that are growing up in this new world where they're basically looking at their phone the majority of the time. I know. And they really need to, you know, understand that interconnectedness. And what's kind of beautiful is because they do rely so much on the internet, there's a gateway for them to understand it without being judgmental and saying, don't look at your phone, uh, don't connect to your friends. We can basically say, look, this is how nature works. It is all about building community. You know, because communities survive better than individuals. So it, I think it's an antidote to this disconnected, digital, hyperactive world that young people are growing up today. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I can't wait to show this to my kid. In a certain section of the film, there's an entire conversation about, we'll call them magic mushrooms or psilocybin. Mm -hmm. It's a topic I take really seriously. One, I'm sober five years from all substances that are in any way altering to my mind. And um, I'm really proud of that because it just presented a real big problem for me. But I always speak very candidly. Um, most of my addiction was to marijuana. But I will say that at certain junctures throughout my adult life, there were micro doses of psilocybin that I was experimenting with that absolutely expanded my brain, that absolutely triggered vast spaces of creativity and even bigger thinking in a much more sort of literal and practical way than I ever would have experienced without those experiences. And I want to say that even though I no longer do any of this personally, I felt very validated by the section of the film where we talked about how the mushrooms create the, the mushrooms that grow out of the cow patties, that they induce synesthesia, that they open up floodgates of information, and that they actually have been found in clinical trials to increase the size of the brain by expanding the neural synaptic capacity of the brain. And I felt like that was actually totally true for me. And <laughs> it made me long slightly for past times, I have to say. But I, I feel like that the psilocybin does give a lot of meaning for certain people. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, no way, I don't do drugs or I don't use those things or, mm. you know, you have some sort of aversion or story about psilocybin, I just want you to possibly, and this is coming from a sober person, yeah. open your mind and consider that these networks, these possibilities, this feeling of vastness, this vision that I have for myself was born of a lot of those moments where I felt the effect of this, what I'll call medicine in my brain, opening me up to see other potentialities that I hadn't seen before. I, yeah. I'm not advocating, but I am saying it really did happen for me that way. Yeah. Well, 
first of all, you know, I would just want to make one minor correction. I mean, it doesn't really expand the size of your brain. That's that was part of the uh, Stone Age hypothesis that billion years ago that, that the brain expanded, and they think that could be the missing link between the primate and the Homo sapiens species. I see. But to address what you're talking about in terms of your own personal experience, what science has shown is that it depresses what's called the default mode network. That's sort of like the, the organizer or the COO in your brain. So basically, you're not under the influence of a drug. What you're basically doing is similar to what deep meditation does, which is getting rid of the monkey mind. So, that, so parts of the brain are, are speaking to each other that normally don't communicate. That music can be emotion, and emotion can be color. And what you're doing is you're sort of temporarily kind of, you know, allowing neural networks to connect to each other that don't normally do. And what that can be is an extremely enlightening experience. It can open up things that might have been buried whether it's trauma, which is what they use it for, for example, with people with PTSD. It's used at Johns Hopkins with people that get a severe cancer diagnosis to relieve that anxiety. At the University of Alabama, they use it to treat addiction of, for cocaine. Uh, they also use it to treat addiction with tobacco and alcoholism. So I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't even call it a drug at all. I mean, this is really a sacred medicine yeah. that if used in the right place and set setting, and it's not addictive because typically most people who have you know, done mushrooms, including myself, you do it maybe once or twice. And once you get it, you don't need to do it again. The, the good metaphor is it's almost like you're at base camp ready to climb Mount Everest and you get a quick little helicopter ride up to the top and you get to see what the mountaintop looks like, but then you come down to base camp, and then the next day you've got to do the work. You've got to do the journey. You've got to integrate whatever it inspired you and make that a part of your life. So, you know, having one aha moment after another isn't going to, you know, improve your life mm -hmm. and or change the world. What you need to do is get a glimpse of what is possible and then go out and do the work and make it happen. I had a book a long time ago, I still have it actually, called The Master Game by Robert S. DeRop, and it makes the same sort of argument that with any sort of mind-altering substance to have the experience is, yes, part of it, and then to integrate it and make it a part of your daily, practical, integrated life you know, take that information and use it properly. That's sort of the magic and the master game itself, actually. We do it at Johns Hopkins and at the clinics that are opening up where you can have a medicinal treatment. There's, you know, uh, an introduction phase, like a day one. Day two, you might take the journey. And then day three is integration. Mm. And that's part of the program. And that's how it is structured inside of a medical clinical environment. I was taken by that uh, that aspect of the film when we when we looked into the medical and clinical trials that were done with real people, real humans. I felt like that was a really important aspect to watch and to see and how these people who were in a great deal of pain and suffering who used the medicine to open their minds up to see the much bigger picture, broader perspective. 
and were able to get clear. Yeah. And the most important part that you hear is there's this overwhelming feeling of love, of, of compassion. And for those that are maybe battling with things like cancer, they lose their fear of dying. It makes them more comfortable with living because they lose their fear of dying. So imagine you have this terrible you know, diagnosis that you've got cancer. So you're fighting that on a physical level. But imagine what your head must be going through knowing that there's this like, you know, ter terrible diagnosis. So mentally, you're not really helping the body because the mind and body are connected because you're like, you're freaked out, right? I mean, it's totally understandable that you'd be freaked out. And if you're thinking about dying, do you really want to be thinking about heaven and hell? I mean, what kind of a story is that to help you feel good about a potential change in your life? You know, maybe you'll survive, maybe you won't. But my God, wouldn't it be nice to feel comfortable that maybe you're connected to every molecule in, in the universe instead of some kind of fairy tale horrific story of heaven and hell? So I think it's a major, major breakthrough. Mm. I mean, I'm sure everybody has this existential anxiety. What happens when you die? If this can kind of make people feel more comfortable, not that they have the answer, but they just feel more relaxed about that issue. What a gift. Yeah. I feel like this brings us right back to the very beginning, which is that the medicine in whatever form we get to experience it, the fungi, are just showing us the interconnectedness and the interdependence of things. And once we know about that, death does not serve as a, as a, as a scare tactic anymore. It's just a part of it. If the theme of your podcast is transition, right. it's just another it's just another transition. Let's try to look at it that way yeah. and get rid of the of a guy hanging on a cross, you know, with nails in them. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a much more positive image. I think the last thing I wanted to talk about with respect to the film was the the whole conversation about mushrooms as immune boosting. Mm -hmm. And how it started was that the the reishi mushroom in particular helps the immunity both of people, humans, and the bees, which are very mm -hmm. seriously endangered right now. And Paul Stamets has apparently five patents uh, for, I'm hoping I'm saying this right, entomopathogenic fungi yeah. that infect insects that will someday serve as a natural extermination function for like things like fire ant, bed bugs, mosquitoes, um, and that termites, termites, right? Yeah. Which is nice because we're using a lot of chemicals and those chemicals are building up toxicity in our bodies. Anytime our homes are treated, anytime our lawns are treated, all that, all that stuff just builds up. Well, um, I think it's pretty remarkable. You know, when I was, Working with Paul on the movie, I was finishing up a feature film, a Disney nature feature film called Wings of Life, which was all about pollinators, bees, bats, hummingbirds, butterflies, making love to flowers. Mm. It's narrated by Meryl Streep, and she tells the story from the point of view of the flowers. So, you know, I learned that pollination is critical to our survival because all of the healthy food we need to eat, fruits, nuts, berries, vegetables, seeds, all comes from pollinating plants. 70% of your diet, if you're vegan, 100% of your diet comes from pollinating plants. And then, you know, when I knew that, you know, we're dealing with this thing called colony collapse disorder, the fact that the bees are disappearing, 
I asked Paul, I said, come on, Paul, you're a scientist, you're brilliant. We got to come up with, you can come up with a solution to save the bees. And sure enough, he did, you know, he did a little bit of research. He came up with a, a mushroom extract that is put into the sugar water that is fed to the beehives that are used in agricultural giant plantations, which is where we are in today's world. Thousands of acres of almond trees, a monoculture. But nevertheless, it's building up the immunity in the bees so that they can fight the viruses that are now believed to be the major cause of colony collapse disorder. Now, viruses and and these mites have always been there. The bees are suffering because their immunity has been diminished from environmental degradation, from pesticides, from having to live in a monoculture, from being shipped 50,000 miles a year on the back of a flatbed truck Mm. from one monoculture to another. You know, they're working overtime uh, to give us the food that we need to eat. And their resilience is being diminished tremendously. And so now, just like with AIDS, if you have AIDS, you know, you don't die of AIDS. You die of complications like pneumonia and other things because of your resistance and your immunity being so diminished. And that's what's happening to the bees. So this is pretty remarkable that the mushrooms have the ability to build the immunity, not only in bees, but also in humans. And I think also that when we when we're working with this sort of whole conversation, we're also we can go back to the the basically discovery of penicillin, nineteen twenty, when we figured out that penicillin is made from mold that actually protects us. And I don't I actually can't take antibiotics because I get really really sick. But it's interesting to see the the trajectory and the chronology of all of this. Well. Because penicillin has saved more lives than any other medicine in the history of mankind. So why is that? It's because we evolved from fungi. So, you know, billions of years ago, there was fungi and plants. Fungi then, you know, split in two directions where animals evolved from fungi. So that means that the viruses that attack them and attack us we, have, we, we share similar DNA, and what they try to do is, with their enzymes, fight those viruses and bacteria. So they help us because they're, you know, let's face it, 10 or 20% of your, of your body is made up of fungi. You know, your whole intestinal tract, if it didn't have fungi, that microbiome, you wouldn't be able to digest food. So we have this symbiotic relationship with them, and the, the, the viruses they have to defend themselves against are the similar ones that we have to defend ourselves against, which is why penicillin is a powerful antibiotic. Got it. Wow. I, um, I would love to learn more about your other work outside of Fantastic Fungi, even though this is really the thrust of this. Can you talk to us about your top three projects in your history and current and why? I would say when I graduated UCLA, I, I wanted to shoot you know high quality 35 millimeter movie film, but I couldn't afford it. Film costs $100 a minute for purchase, develop, and process back then. And so one of the things I developed was this idea of filming time lapse in 35 millimeter, which nobody had done before. So they had these old, big, heavy 
animation cameras with an AC-powered motor, and I wanted to take the camera outdoors to shoot nature. So a friend of mine made electric guitars for the Grateful Dead. He helped me build a battery-powered motor that I could take these heavy cameras outdoors. I put still camera lenses on them, and I started to chase the light, you know, shooting things like, you know, sunrises and sunsets and fog, shafts of light, flowers, etc. And so the economics was one part. The other part of it was, and the most important part, it filled my sense of wonder. To be able to look at life from a different point of view of, of time, the way a flower looks at life, the way a hummingbird looks at life, which is slow motion, to be able to look at things in a different time frame and a different scale broadens your perspective about life on our planet. And I'm just trying to explore the rhythms and patterns that, that touch my soul as an artist. Mm -hmm. And indirectly, you know, it has certainly inspired a lot of scientists that said, oh my God, I never saw that before, which has been great. So that has led me on this idea of really looking to understand nature's intelligence. So whether I tell it from the story of the POV of a flower with Meryl Streep's voice, or through the point of view of a mushroom with Brie Larson's voice. Nice. Again, emphasizing the, the feminine, the feminine side of nature, which is about relationships, which is about symbiosis, it's about regeneration, rebirth, not the macho story of predator versus prey, survival of the fittest, doggy dog story that gets ratings on Shark Week. I'm trying to really look at the billions of little intersections that makes the world go round. And so with my imagery, in addition to doing these films, I've started to introduce it into healthcare. Um, at the Jacobs Medical Center at the University of California in San Diego, we've actually introduced it in every patient room because they had like an iPad that enabled the patient to control the lighting and shades in the room and also enabled them to track their own medical record and procedures. And I suggested, let's give patients the power of choice. Let them have the ability to say, where in the world do I want to go to be healed? And the choices that are offered are forest, ocean, desert, flowers, underwater. And they get like a 20-minute video with music, no narration, to kind of go on their own personal journey. And, and I'm hoping that we'll collect data to show that it lowers heart rate, respiration rate, less addiction to painkillers, better sleep, and shorter hospital stays. Yeah. The beauty of nature, I believe, in and of itself, is a healing modality. I think beauty is nature's tool for survival because we protect what we fall in love with. We're hardwired to do that. And it is medicine. So ask yourself this question. Why is it? that there is no healing modality for vision. We have it for touch, massage. You have it for smell, aromatherapy. We have it for music, right? Guided med med meditation. Um, we have it for every sensory receptor except vision. And vision is where you get 80% of your information. Wow. I never thought about that. Yeah. But beauty as the beauty of nature, the beauty of nature as a healing modality, that is something that really speaks. 
There's a, a friend of mine just sent me today on Instagram a flower called the Mahameru flower that blossoms in the Himalayas once every 400 years. Bro. Mahameru, M-A-H-A-M-E-R-U, I believe. It is the most stunning, and it's blossoming right now. That flower is a sexual organ of a plant. That's why I've been shooting flowers nonstop for four decades. And I thought that, you know, just being, you know, seduced by their color and taste, touch, and smell was enough. But then, you know, when I heard that the bees were disappearing, I realized there was a greater mission in what I was doing, which is to be able to tell this, a love story, a love story of how bees and flowers have co-evolved over 50 million years. They're the love messengers that moved the pollen from one plant to another because they don't have legs. And, and at the same time, the bee is getting food to feed its, its brood, its babies. Right. What a beautiful story that they're enabling each other and they're doing it unknowingly. I don't think the bee is thinking about, oh, I got to move that you know, sperm of the pollen from one plant to another. I'm just gathering food for my baby. Right. It's not a, I don't think the brain capacity of the bee is such that we're, we're anthropomorphizing them and thinking that they're thinking like we are. Yeah. It's just, a, it's, a, it's an imperative. But yeah, but in the beauty of nature, like we have these symbiotic relationships where it's not always quid pro quo. It's not always, you do this, I do that. I help you, you help me, knowingly. It's the fabric of life is so beautiful that even when we're doing things for ourselves, we're doing things for each other. So beautiful. I ask three questions of every single guest. The first question is, what in your life, sphere, body, world, needs healing right now? Mm. That's a good question. I think that my, my parents were both Holocaust survivors and, um, and growing up under their roof, I, I, there was a lot of positive stuff that I learned, like gratitude, you know, appreciating all the little things in life. And I think that certainly influenced, you know, the films that I make. I'm looking at the little things. I'm looking at things that can overcome adversity. But I also think that, you know, growing up in that household, it's easy for me to feel victimized. And I'm learning to um, be stronger and more aware that when things don't go right or if somebody does something that I feel is unjust, that I don't get trapped into feeling hurt, and uh, which is a comforting feeling as you know, we're learning that you know, people who take on that idea of victimization, there's comfort in feeling bad because it's a familiar neurological pathway. So I'm learning how to overcome that. There have also been studies done with generations that succeed the Holocaust survivors where there are real emotional, mental, psychological, as well as physiological ramifications to being yeah. the descendants of that, of that whole experience. It's very real. Yeah, my sister has, you know, had a very, uh, has suffered a lot in her life. I've heard that, you know, studies basically say either become, you know, victims or overachievers. Right. Because you want to like, you know, heal the world and make the world a better place. You don't want anything like that to occur again. 
So um, I've seen both the positive and the negative. Yeah, I can imagine. The second question is, what is your favorite view for somebody like you? This is a special question. My favorite view, like i.e. landscape or visual view? Some people take it that way. And some people like myself, I look at, I think about my favorite view. It's the side of my kid's neck. Uh Uh-huh. I like exploring the rhythms and patterns of nature that I find everywhere or anywhere, like literally like in a puddle where I see the light kind of bouncing off some water. I get mesmerized by looking at light dancing off that pattern. That pattern is a fingerprint of the universe. And it's a little reminder how I'm just like a speck in this grand thing called life. Yeah. That is a nice perspective from a cinematographer. It's exactly what I what I would need to hear. Mm-hmm. And the third question, what does prayer mean to you? Well, uh, you'd have to, what is your definition of prayer? That's up to you to determine. All right. Well, I, I believe in having a positive intention can manifest the results that you want to have. And I think and believe that if you just visualize where you want to go and keep that in your head and let go of how you're going to get there, you know, what the mechanics are, but just see the end result. See yourself in that place. Um, I've been seeing myself standing in front of a marquee with sold out theaters for a fantastic fungi Mm. and it's happening. (laughs) Totally. And it's finally happening. And so how do I get there? That's complicated, and it's sort of unfolding, and thank God it is happening. And I definitely would encourage everyone to go to fantasticfungi.com and check out their screening schedule to see where the film will be played, hopefully in a city near you. But miraculously, without an ad budget, we're selling out theaters because there's a story. It's not about the mushrooms. This is a story about elevating consciousness. It's a story of looking at life from the point of view of a mushroom and unearthing nature's intelligence. And when you can look at nature's intelligence, wow, that's just like, that's a bigger aha moment than even taking magic mushrooms. Right. And there's also the whole idea of the impact that this understanding has on the whole of this planet, on our healing. Yes. That's why you're selling out theaters because you are right on time. You are coming in here with a solution that hopefully we can put into place, but this is a definitive solution. So thank you. Yeah. And it's, and it's also giving people hope, especially young people when the news is always about the fact that, you know, with climate change, we may be past the tipping point, you know, life 40, 50 years from now will be radically different if we don't change our course. And right now we're doing the opposite of what we should be doing with the current administration. And that can be very, very depressing. So what I love is at the end of the movie, a lot of young people have come up to me and said, for the first time, here's a powerful environmental message being shared and they feel hopeful and they feel inspired that we can make the world a healthy place. I will never stop thanking you personally and to everyone who is involved with making fantastic fungi. Thank you for 
giving me a lot of hope and um, and sharing it with the world. I appreciate you so much, Louis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.